Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. It's good to be here. I know most of you have no clue who we are, and that's okay. We think of you, not individually, but as a church every month, and not just because we cash your checks, right? We do that because we, we made a decision a long time ago to leave country, to leave home, family, friends, for the sake of the gospel. And um, God has used you to allow us to do that. And you've sent missionaries all over the world, and that's a fantastic thing. And after 18 years in South America, an interesting thing happened. We felt the desire to move to Europe and work in Europe. And imagine, think of your profession. Those of you that have acquired a set of skills during your life in a certain profession, imagine if you get to work the next day and none of those skills worked, and they were all taken away. That's what happened to us, I felt like, when we moved to Spain. For 18 years, we had been church planters in South America. We had successfully started churches who then started churches. Everything was great on my hard drive in my computer. I have years of sermons, uh, Sunday school material, discipleship material, small group curriculum I've written. Like, it's all there. And then I moved to Europe, and none of it seemed to work. None of the tools in my toolbox seemed to work. And it brought up some interesting questions as we realized that the world in Europe has changed. And then last year, we had to come home because of parental health issues, and I was appointed as director of a new gap year ministry to young adults ages 17 to 25 who want to know what it means to be a Christian beyond the walls of the church. And so it's a 10-month program with Johnson University involved as well, where we teach you how to engage people outside the walls of the church. And so my job basically now is I go all around the country sharing what I've learned from Europe, because in a very real sense, I feel like... I'm back in the States, and I'm a person that's come a little bit from the future. And what I mean by that is Europe, socially and culturally, is about 10 to 20, 25 years ahead of where the U.S. is. U.S. is a leader in many things. Philosophically, secularly, we are following in the footsteps of Europe. And so I suddenly came back to the States to live with my wife and family, and it seems as if our country has lost its mind. Have any of you thought that recently? Like our country has lost its mind, right? And so I, I began to see parallels between Europe and what's happening here. Things that we had to relearn about how we live as Christians in a post-secular, post-modern world. And so we're back in the States now, and I travel all over, and I speak to adults, basically trying to explain to those over 35 their children's or their grandchildren's world. And then I go to universities, and I go to teach high schoolers, and I speak to them about trying to explain their parents' and their grandparents' world. So I'm going to share with you what I do with them, right? It's a little chart I made trying to explain. I'm going to talk to you like I do college. I was at Ball State recently sharing there, and I'm trying to explain to them, let me explain your parents' and your grandparents' world. So you're my audience. This is what I share with them. The truth about church and your parents' and your grandparents' world, the church was respected. 
The church had a position in a society that had power, that had influence. It was a big boy on the block. Your minister was valued in community, was esteemed. Even if people didn't want to go to church, they, didn't, they weren't Christians, everybody knew what church was, and it had a certain power within, uh, in, in influence in its greater surroundings, right? That was the world in your parents' and your grandparents' world. That was their world. There was a message that the church gave. And they use this phrase, you, living your life as a testimony, right? Living your life as a testimony. A primary message was be good. So the idea was, uh, you know, as you live your life for Christ, you will live in such a way that people will see the way you live and they will see Christ and want to follow him. So there was this term developed in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s called lifestyle evangelism. The idea was, you know, they would say at all times preach and if you must use words. What they're trying to get at, look, man, your words aren't enough. You've got you've to live. And that is totally true, right? So the message was, if you would just uh, live correctly, people will see Jesus. That was the life in your parents' and your grandparents' world. The truth about knowledge in your parents' and your grandparents' world. The idea was that the more knowledge you had, right, the more spiritual you would be. The more you knew, right, the more you know, the more you will grow. That was the idea. So we had Sunday school programs and Bible studies, and we had colleges, Christian seminaries, and we had home groups, and you have Christian bookstores, and we fill ourselves with knowledge with the understanding that it, the more we know, the more we will grow and be effective in our life. That was life in your parents' and your grandparents' world. Knowledge equals maturity. The truth about ourselves, man, that older generation, my generation and above, they were the guys with a stiff upper lip. I mean, they would get it done. You give them a task, they're going to do it. It's all about, you know, they have a high respect for God, high respect for tradition, high respect for the church. And so, man, you give them orders, they're going to be all about it. That was life in your parents' and your grandparents' world. And then I'll switch, and I'll try to explain to parents and grandparents their children and grandchildren's world. And I try to inject a bit of humor with kids that totally failed and showed my age. It's time to be honest, we're not in Kansas anymore. No, no you, young person laughs at that. They don't even know the reference. They're like, no, we're in Indiana, you know. Here's the truth about the church in today's world. Very few are interested. That was probably the most shocking revelation when I moved to Europe. You can go through Europe and you see these great cathedrals, these great buildings that were obviously built with money and people and they sit largely empty. And when I would talk to my Spanish friends or, or people in England I met, they don't have a lot of desire to have anything to do with church. The truth about today's world regarding the church is fewer and fewer are interested. The truth about living your life is a testimony. Probably the most shocking thing in Europe was realizing I'm surrounded by atheists, right? Most people that we know, they would say, I'm Catholic, but I'm an atheist Catholic. So you're culturally Catholic. That's how you were baptized. You know, you're Catholic, but I'm an atheist, right? And even though they're atheists, they're not out raping and pillaging. They have children that they're trying to love and they're trying to raise correctly. They're trying to live a good life. They're trying to be good people. And over our 10 years there, we had lots of people come to work as apprentices and interns with us and teammates. And do you know one out of every three missionaries that were sent to us within two years would have a faith crisis where they would question whether they even believed in God? Do you know why? Because it's the first time in their life they're out of that bubble. They're surrounded by lost people who think all kinds of things. 
And yet, they're just trying to get by. Our kids and our grandkids are being raised in a school system, going to school and watching TV and movies where they're surrounded by kids who are confused about their sexual identity, who are different races, who are different religions, who are different things that maybe we as Christians will say, that's awful. And you know what your kids and grandkids are seeing? Just other kids trying to get by. There are lots of good people in the world. The truth about knowledge. We are hearers and not doers. Truth about knowledge in our world today, and we just got to confess. Just think about that. We, they will know we are Christians by our what? By our love, right? Add up in your life. If you've been raised in the church kind of like I was, and I'm so grateful for that, count up. How many sermons do you think you've heard? How many Sunday school classes have you participated in? How many small groups have you gone to? How many discipleship groups? How many conferences? How many books? How many retreats? If we're measured by our spirituality in the fruits of the Spirit in our life, we should be known as the most loving, gracious, merciful, joyful, thankful people, hope-filled people in the face of the earth because that's, that's our thing. That's what we read about and that's what we take in. Now, you don't have to do this, but I've done this. You go to your Google search bar and you type in this, why are Christians so? Now, if you do a Google search, what, what Google's algorithms do is it will finish that search for you, right, with the most common questions. So the things that you're typing in, it'll give you the most search ends of that sentence, why are Christians so? And do you know what does not appear on that list? Why are Christians so loving? Why are Christians so gracious? Why are Christians so forgiving? Why are Christians so hopeful? Unfortunately, those are not the things that appear. When it comes to the knowledge part, one of the biggest shocks to me was asking my best friend that I just knew, I knew this is going to be the first disciple, like the first one. And I said, hey, hey would you, um, do you want to study the Bible? First off, most people, unless you're a nerd like me, you stop studying at one point in your life and you get to what, what's more enjoyable maybe than study, right? So he looked at me, he's like, why would I want to study? Like, I did that already. And I said, well, you know, look into the Bible and really see. And he's like, dude, why would I want to study your book with talking animals? Like, seriously. And I was just like, wow. And it was another moment where I realized, man, his world and my world, we are very, very different. The truth about knowledge is we have this idea that the more you know, the more you will grow, right? That if you know something that will reflect in your life, you will grow spiritually. But you do not measure spirituality, if you can measure it, by how much you know, but by how much you obey, right? It's not how much you know, I know a ton. That doesn't mean I obey to the same level. So you may have somebody that knows a ton, but they only obey up to here. Somebody else only knows to here, but man, they're right here in obedience. So the younger generation, man, they can smell out hypocrisy in everybody else but themselves. Like they get it. See, I'm, I'm not doing that just to hammer on them, right? But it's a reality. They can sniff that stuff out everywhere else experts at it. And they understand when we are hearers and not doers. Do you know, as I go around the country, here's the message from 35s and under that's in the research, right? This has been demonstrated. But as I've gone around, it even applies differently. 35s and under are largely uninterested in church. But as I go to church after church after church, 
35 and unders who are Christians and who go to church, they come up to me and said, I'm so glad you said that. I don't get it. Like I'm here because I know I'm supposed to be here. I have no idea what this means out there. I want to do something for Christ. I want my life to count. I want it to mean something. I just don't get what here has to do with out there. Man, our world has changed. And the truth about ourselves is this. We need accountability. You know, if you were to ask me, Chris, what do I need to do to have a healthy life? I'm not a nutritionist, but I've lived long enough with my own weight issues. I can tell you exactly what to do. I have a gym membership to prove it, but I rarely go, right? So the fact that we know things don't mean that we automatically will do them. Every time Steve preaches or anybody else teaches, we do so in the hopes that you will take that and automatically apply it. Growth is not easy. We need accountability. We need people in our lives who are saying, how are you doing this? In what ways are you doing this? So this morning, I want to share three of the things that we've learned in Europe, and maybe they'll apply here to you. The first thing we're going to do with the story of the prodigal son, and I'm aware that um, uh, most people know it. I'm not going to retell the whole story, but I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes, the short version. Uh, a younger of two sons told his dad before he even died, give me my part of the inheritance. And he took it and he went to a distant land where he wasted it all. There were hard times in that land. He was out of money, out of friends, out of options, out of work. He was starving. He found a job feeding pigs. And at some point, he came to and said, how many servants are in my father's house? I'm going to go back, tell my father I've sinned against him, take me on as a servant. Right? That's the story. We're going to pick it up there. There are three things we realize in Europe we've got to do because there's a crucial question. So this is the crucial question I have for you that we had to ask in order to answer with our three things. What does the church do when no matter what it does to get people to come, no longer works? That's what we had to ask ourselves in Europe with all these churches that are either diminishing or pretty empty. What does the church do when no matter what it does to get people to come, no longer works? What have we done historically? You know, when I was a kid, Man, there were street preachers and people going door to door, right? Eventually, there was bus ministry. Does anybody remember the buses when churches started buying buses? I had a guy um, outside of Dallas, from Dallas. He, he told me their church had what they called the magic candy bus. Now, listen to this. This bus, these buses would drive around neighborhoods offering kids if they would get on the bus and go to church candy. Can you imagine? Like today, Right? Then we decided, okay, to get people to come, if we build a family life center, that's a way we can bless the community and bring people in. So we built family life center. And then, well, we need to have contemporary music and a band. And now it's all the way down to a pastor in skinny jeans and a beard down to here. Steve and Luke have a way to go in that department, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing any of those things. Do you know why we did those things? Because... We want people to know God. We want people to come. Isn't that what you want? Wouldn't you love for this church to continue to grow and be filled? Man, that's why we do those things. I have no criticism for that. But there's a question because societies have shifted. Our society has shifted. What happens and what do we do when no matter what we do now to adapt to get people to come, they're like, yeah, not interested. What do we do? If they're not willing to come, there's only one other answer to accomplish God's mission, and that's to go, right? Such a simple thing, but man, it's not simple at all. 
when it's been so easy to come, right? And, and learn and listen and be together. If people would just come, but they're not. Suddenly, we're being asked to do things that maybe we always talked about, but we didn't have to because we could say come. And so first thing we have to do is we have to understand that context. So I'm using the prodigal son. It's not like an in-depth study at all. It's just what did this guy do when he got to the end of his rope, when he realized this is not working for me? I'm starving, I'm hungry, all my friends have left me, I'm destitute. He went back home to his father. Do you know what happens to powerful people when they lose it? They get angry. When the powerful becomes powerless, they complain, they get angry, they yell, they fight, they proclaim their rights. Do you know what Christ did when he was at the hands of those persecuting him? He flipped the script. There's a verse that I think it's all good for us to remember from 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. He chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. Do you know, now that I've come back and it seems like the world has lost its mind here in America, I meet with a lot of preachers and they have this stunned look in their eyes because they've recognized this cultural seismic shift and they can see the writing on the walls for the future. And yet, God has not changed, has he? His word has not changed. And you know what? As much as culture has changed, people, we're still spiritual people. We have spiritual needs. And I am so excited because God's word is, he didn't choose us because of our power. He chose us in spite of our weaknesses so that he could display his power. And you know, wouldn't it be interesting that as much of the outrage we may feel at losing our position of power, what if God's sitting there going, this is what I've been waiting for. Because now churches all over are coming to the conclusion, people aren't coming. We have to go. What in the world do we do? So I've worked in lots of different countries, and many of them, especially in Latin America and in Africa when I've been there, the Christians are powerless. Like they, they have no power. And yet, and they're even persecuted, yet they're known as people of the book, people of joy, people of hope. Do you know what the powerless do? They run to God. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you're overcome with worries and concerns and then it just goes away? I had one of those where I wasn't in a great place with God. I wasn't like willfully being a horrible person. I just was not. I was preoccupied with school and stress of a family and my worries and my concerns. I had not been in prayer much. I had not been in the word much. And at one precise moment, the phone call rings, and it's my wife saying, Daniel, our son, has been hit by a car. He's unconscious. They're taking him to the hospital. What do you think happened to me at that moment? Man, I started wheeling and dealing with God. Like, it didn't matter. My concerns about work, about debt, about this, they all went away. And I was just like, oh God, save my son. Oh God, I come to you now. Because when you are powerless, you turn to the one who has power. And you know, God has used us 
in this country for so long. We've, we've enjoyed a position of power, and he's done great things through us. Now we are losing that power, and I think it's the best thing in the world in some respects because now it's going to cause us. When we are powerless, we will cling to God, and we'll say, God, help us. There's something else we'll do too. We'll cling to each other, right? We'll depend on each other. The prodigal son realized that his context had changed and he needed to change. But there's a second thing. So in Europe, we realized, number one, we need to stop fighting a culture war. In Europe, it's already been fought and it's dead. Culture's gone, but we remain. So number one, we have to realize that. It's not enough just to say, hey, do you want to study the Bible? Do you want to? We need to go. We need to incarnate. We need to become Christ in people's lives. But the second thing is we have to identify Understand our identity, who we are. Remember when the prodigal son returns, his father sees him from a distance. It says he runs to him and he embraces him. And his son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Take me as your servant. But what does the father do? He brings, to, he calls his servants, bring new sandals, new garments. Give the family ring back. With that family ring, he says, you are not a servant. You are my son. We realize in Europe, if we're going to go and engage people, we not only have to cling to God and each other and ask for his power, we have to assume our identities, who we really are. Who are you? If I were to talk to you and ask you who you are, you'll probably give me your name and you'll probably give me your profession. That is not who you are. In the Old Testament, God wanted to reach the, the world, right? And so he talked to Israel. Now remember, Israel has no land. Israel are a bunch of escaped slaves who, who are nomads, right? They have nothing. And God gives them this promise. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Imagine if God showed up in your bedroom where you live at this very moment. You're there in your bedroom. God shows up and he says, hey, you know, I have chosen you as my treasured possession. You know, you will be, for me, a treasured possession. How would you feel? You know, for, for Jewish people who were escaped slaves, who had no country to call their own, I think they loved it. I think they were like, that is fantastic, I'll take it, right? I don't think they heard the rest of this, or they didn't act like it. God says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They help people connect to God, right? Priests help people find their ways back to God. So God declares this people, this tiny people that have no land, they have no power. And he says, you will be my priest. All right. Have you ever asked yourself why Israel? Let's look at the map. If you look at the map, the star is Israel. The, the blue to the left is the Mediterranean. All those circles are empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, later the Romans, Egypt. He could have chosen any of them. He chose people that didn't have land. And he said, you will be my priest. And do you know, in the Old Testament, we never see them doing that. We never see it. They never understood that their identity as priests is to help all those other countries connect to God. But God said to them, okay, even though you're disobedient, even though in the Old Testament, we never see Israel going, right? That's a New Testament thing. God said, all right, in spite of you not being willing to go, here's what I will do. I'm going to place you divinely at the crossroads of empires. Do you know in that map, 
there were only two roads that connected all of those empires, and they both ran through the land that God gave them. So God said to Israel, okay, you have not gone out like I wanted. I'm going to divinely place you at the crossroads of empires so you could be people of influence. I'll tell you a story. We had started our second, no, our third church in Ecuador, and we had a small group of about 20 people who were non-believers, who became believers, and it was time for us to return to the States for one year. We were taking a year to come back to the States, and they wanted to have a party the night before. We're trying to pack and to leave, and they all met together, and each one of them stood up with tears they basically poured out their hearts of gratitude. We thank God that you came to our country. We are so glad because you taught us how to connect to God. It was a beautiful night. We just watched the video of it uh, over Christmas. And if you could see my body position, I'm staring straight at the floor the whole time because this for me was not a beautiful night. As each one shared wonderful words, all I kept thinking was about the issues that person had. These just weren't normal people with normal problems. These were like huge issues. So one guy starts to talk. He's in his 60s. He's been, spirit, he's been physically and emotionally abusive to his, his family for 60 years. He's now come to the Lord, asked forgiveness, but they despise him. The next lady, she's already tipsy, right? She's had too much to drink. Um, so I'm thinking of her. Then the next one, I've actually had to physically run to their house. I'm on the floor wrestling between the mother and a couple of the daughters as they're fighting. I'm in the midst of a fight. The next one. And so as each one is sharing all that God has done in their life, I'm just feeling worse and worse. And I remember sitting there saying to myself, staring right at the floor, oh God, how do you expect me to build a church with this? That's what came out of my mind. Just give me like two or three normal people with normal problems. Like, that's what I need. How do you expect me to build a church with this? The meeting wraps up. We don't sleep all night. We're packing. We rush to the airport in the morning. No sleep. On the flight between South America and North America, I'm reliving it. I don't know if I'm awake or I'm asleep. I'm reliving. This person's talking. This person, this person. And I'm feeling worse. And I get to the point where I say, oh God, how do you expect me to start a church with this? Give me two or three normal people with normal problems. And I tell you, the, the, it was not an audible voice, but so very clearly I heard God say, I have placed 20 people in your hand. And all you've done is complain and look for somebody else. And immediately I was awake. Immediately. I have placed 20 people in your hand and all you've done is complain and look for somebody else. And as soon as I realized what had happened, I, I repented and I said, I will no longer do that. This is the people that God has given me. Now, you know the beauty of this? Let's go to the New Testament. Look what God says to us. He says, you yourselves are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession so that you may proclaim the mighty acts of the one who has called you. Any Jew reading that would think Exodus 19. So God has said to the Jews, and they didn't get it, so he divinely placed them at the crossroads of empires to influence. He now says to us as the church, you are divinely placed. Now, here's the amazing thing. I don't know you personally. I don't know if you're here this morning and your life is great or your life stinks. I don't know if you have the family you want or your family is fractured. 
I don't know if you have the job you've dreamed of or a job you hate. You may be where you are in life because of God's blessing, or you may be where you are in life because you've made horrible decisions. The beauty of God's message when he comes into your life, he says your identity, you are not only a son, you are my priest, and I will divinely place you at the crossroads of people's lives. Wherever you are, the life you want or the life you don't like, with God, he gives you purpose, and he says right here, right now, who are the people that I've placed in your hand? And how are you exercising your obligations as a priest? Don't think evangelism. I'm not even talking about that word. So your identity was the second thing. We've got to understand the world's changed. Okay, we're not going to win a culture war, right? But we are going to go. We're going to go to the Father and we're going to go to the world. Secondly, we have to say no leadership of a church, no eldership, no minister has the influence that each of you have individually. They can't do what you, only you can do because God has placed you at the crossroads of people's lives. So now what do you do? That's the third question we had in Europe. They're not going to come. We've got to go. What do we do? So going back to the prodigal son, you remember the older son comes home, asks the servant what happened. He says, your brother's back. There's a big party. He gets so angry, he refuses to enter. His father comes out. He refuses to go in. The father goes out. What did Jesus do? He says, I do what I see my father doing. Jesus went. What are we to do? We do come together. We cling to God. We cling to each other. We learn. We worship together. But all of that is to help us go out. That's what we have to do. We have to go out. But what does that mean? We all know that. How many times have we heard we need to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples? How many classes do we need to know we need to fulfill the Great Commission? We know that, but all the young people under 35 are saying, what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know that. I can study a book, but I don't know that. It all comes back to the identity and the power that you have. So here's the question. I'll finish with this. This is the question we ask ourselves in Spain. What is your definition of a leader? What is your definition? How would you define a leader? I, I have a, a, a mental picture. When you think of a leader, what comes up? I have a mental picture. This is my perfect picture of a leader for me. This is like, still hands down, my favorite movie of all time. Like, I don't care about the violence. It's just amazing. I can repeat his speech when he's challenging them to fight and possibly die to have one taste of freedom. Like, I remember that at some point somebody moons somebody. It's fantastic. Like, the whole thing is great, right? If your concept of a leader is a charismatic, powerful person, most of us will never, ever be leaders. If your idea of a leader is somebody with power, charisma, and authority because of a position, most of us will never be leaders. Let's just face it. We're not those people. There are some people. There are certain people that walk into a room and people just naturally like them. And they kind of irritate me because I'm jealous, right? I walk into a room, nothing happens, right? 
There's a guy that's written like 40, 50 books on leadership. Um, I've not read past chapter one in the two or three that I have. I didn't need to because I found this definition. It's the best definition of a leader. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Leadership is influence. Now, any of you under 35, you understand social influencer, right? It's like a big deal in today's youth culture, being a social influence. Leadership is influence. When I think of a leader, I think of my grandmother. My grandmother, Berea, Kentucky, lived with them. My parents divorced when I was young, so I was kind of raised by my grandparents as well until the age of 12. Uh, Berea, Kentucky, uh, I used to grow up eating scrambled eggs and squirrel brains, right? So that's country, right? Um, my grandma, uneducated, um, could barely read her letters when she would handwrite letters to us. Very faithful woman. What I remember growing up on the weekends with her is my grandfather would drive his truck to church. We would get into her cutlass and we would drive, pull out of the driveway, go two doors down, and she would honk, and two kids would come out. Then she'd go down a little bit further, she would honk, and more kids. She would make two or three trips back and forth because she decided those kids need to be in church. She went up and down her street. She went to every person she knew. Do you go to church? Would you like to come to my church? Well, your children need to come to church. Can I come take your children to church? And people were like, yeah, okay. And when she died, hundreds of people at her funeral. A woman who didn't have great charisma. She didn't have power. Nobody knows who she is outside of that. But man, she was an influence. So here's my question to you, and we'll wrap it up this way. And remember, I'm not talking about go out and evangelize. Stop thinking that way, right? People are not projects, right? They're people. So we love them. And part of that, I mean, that is the good news. That's what evangelizing actually means. But we're so stuck with talking about Jesus. If you really believe, this is the question. If you really believe that you had the power to influence everybody's life for better or worse that you come in contact with, what would you do differently? If you really believe that the people that God has placed in your, in your hand, so to speak, divinely placed at the crossroads of your life, if you really believed you had the power to influence them for better or worse, what would you do differently? One of the first things that we do now with everybody that we work with, and we do this in Europe, it's being done all over. Um, if I was working with you, I would give you a sheet of paper with 100 lines on it. And I'd say, let's fill it up. Write down the name of every family member you're in contact with in your life, and you'd write them down. All right, let's go to all your friends. Name them. Put them all down. Let's go to all your church friends. Name them. Put them all down. Let's go to all your coworkers. Name them. Put them all down. Who are the people you don't know their name, but you see them every week? Write them down. Gas person, person, mailman. That's where God has divinely placed you. Boom. So my question is, if you really believed you had the power to influence that group of people every day for better or for worse, what would you do differently? I've asked that all over the world. I never get an answer back. It's always a question. You mean if I really believe that? You've already lost. You are, you're a, you're a child of God and you are a priest of God. You walk in his authority. Wherever you walk, you are a bringer of the kingdom. That's you. It doesn't require power. It doesn't require uh, charisma. It just, it's influence. So there are three things that I came to, and, and I'll just end asking, what are those things you're going to do? The first thing is, I would notice more. And that's that list. 
The list of a hundred, we call it. I make a list. Who are the people that God has divinely placed in my life? I notice. There are people I discover when I put up, make that list that are in my life and I've never really even seen them. I never noticed, never cared. But now they're on that list. They're who God has placed in my life. Second thing is, man, I'm going to pray. I mean, I can't do this. Who am I? Like, I'm a professional at this, and I've sat through coffee after coffee in Europe saying, oh, God, what do I say? Right? So I start to pray. That was, that's the second thing I'm going to do. I'm going to start to pray. Oh, God, if I have that power to influence, I need your help. And the third thing is I'm going to engage. I'm going to engage. Lifestyle evangelism's a joke if you don't use words. You have to use words with people. You have to treat people as people. Ask questions, see them, connect with them. And it's not about evangelism, it's about blessing. It's about speaking into their lives. That's some of the things that I've learned in Europe that now that I'm back in this mad world that we live in, I'm not that discouraged in spite of it all because I'm connecting with people as an introvert. If I don't have to talk to people I don't know as an introvert, I'm perfectly happy, but I can't be a priest that way. So I invite you to recognize this great cultural shift and don't despair over it. Go to God. As your church leads you to engage culture beyond the walls of the church, remember who you are and remember where God has divinely placed you at the crossroads of people's lives. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you that you have not changed. This world right now that we live in in America is just crazy. And we may not have all the answers to that, but we know you do have the answer to purpose and life and forgiveness and freedom. Lord, help us be those kind of people. We are a people who can come together to worship you and to learn about you and to grow. But not just to do that amongst ourselves. It's for a purpose. Teach us how to go. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.